Welcome to Talking Nutritionally. I'm Ellie McLean, your host and nutritionist. Through this podcast, I hope to connect you with the answers to your biggest nutrition-related questions. Each week, I interview experts in their field from training to hormone health, fertility, body composition, metabolic health, gut health, and so much more. We cover it all because it all influences you achieving peak health and performance. I hope you enjoy tuning in each week. If you do, please be sure to follow me for more via Instagram at Nutritionally. And please also be aware that this show is not intended to treat or diagnose any health conditions. And if you do need tailored support, please explore more at nutritionally.com. In episode 15, I welcome Dr. Lucy Burns. She is a general practitioner specializing in lifestyle medicine. She's based in Frankston, just south of Melbourne, Australia. She graduated from Monash Medical School in 1993 and received her fellowship with the RACGP in 1998. She also has a diploma of obstetrics, a certificate in clinical hypnosis, and has board certification as a lifestyle physician with the ASLM. When she isn't doctoring, Lucy lives with her husband, two teenage daughters, two dogs, four cats, three horses, four ducks, three frogs, a goat, and a miniature cow. In this interview, Dr. Lucy Burns very beautifully explains what cholesterol is and what the numbers on your blood test results mean. She explains the influence of inflammation on the development of atherosclerosis, as well as the contribution of dietary carbohydrates, hyperinsulinemia, and liver function. If you have a history of elevated cholesterol, know someone with elevated cholesterol, or if you are genuinely confused about cholesterol, then this interview is one you don't want to miss. Hello, Lucy. So great to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Ah, oh, you're welcome, Ali. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have this conversation. Um, you are a specialist in fat loss in the medical space, and um, I guess connecting your clientele with lower carbohydrate, higher fat or healthier fat nutrition, uh, I guess, as part of that weight loss strategy. So I thought, who better to have a conversation with than you around saturated fats, cholesterol, and this whole debate about, you know, whether they are or aren't, uh, you know, going to be the undoer of our good health. So absolutely. So the great cholesterol debate. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And it is a conversation I probably have most days um, with people because, you know, we do see that when people go on a a lower or low carbohydrate diet, for some people their cholesterol um, profile does change. And for some people that improves enormously and for other people it will increase. And so there's, yeah, conversations that we have around what that actually means. Mm. Um, now you're a doctor, so you're very well qualified to have that conversation um, with your patients. Um, have yep. you always been a doctor practising or specialised in, in you know, real-life medicine and weight loss? Not at all. Not at all. I used to be a standard general practitioner with, you know, the 15-minute consults. Um, I was never very good at the 15-minute medicine. And in fact, you know, these days it's more like 10-minute medicine for Mm. doctors to be able to run their practice and actually not go broke. They're having to put very high turn turn throughput through. And I'm not good at that because I like to talk to people. I like Absolutely. to know people. I like to understand where they're coming from. Yeah. And so, yeah, I had, I just, it became hollow to me. So I went and did a bit more training in lifestyle medicine and also in um, psychological medicine and as, as well um, as hypnotherapy. So medical yeah. hypnosis, because I really wanted to help people get to the root cause of their problem, not mm. just a Band-Aid over the top of it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, as a nutritionist who has client who have clients coming to see me often off the back of a conversation with their doctor um, where, you know, that 10-minute consult might look like, you know, we've discovered outcome X in your blood test results and here is pharmaceutical Y or um, we'll repeat that in 12 months and see if the tests got worse or better. I can understand why 
conventional GPs are having a difficult time because they don't have the time to ask their clients or um, patients about, you know, lifestyle choices that they're making or, you know, the risk factors that could be leading to, you know, test result X and what else they could be doing differently in their life to avoid prescription Y. Like that stuff takes time to discuss. I can see why you really wanted to, you know, step away from the conventional model of practice. Uh, it, it absolutely does take time to discuss. And I think at its heart, a lot of doctors don't necessarily believe in lifestyle medicine. They, mm. you know, it, there is always a tokenism, you know, uh, yeah, lifestyle factors discussed with patients. And it's like, really? Like, did you actually, or did you just sort of give a pamphlet and, and not really explore it? But mm. as a lifestyle medicine physician, we use lifestyle you know, and lifestyle medicine is using things that are in people's life. So the nutrition, some, you know, movement, sleep, stress management in particular, all of those factors to not just prevent disease, but actually improve and reverse it. And my greatest joy is to be able to de-prescribe. So take people mm-hmm. off their medication that they no longer need because they can actually manage their health with changes in, in their lifestyle. With the caveat that sometimes, no matter what somebody does to optimise their lifestyle, mm. for some people they do occasionally need medication. Yeah. And so it is just, it's not an either or, but I think we've got the balance wrong in our current um, current society. We, we yeah. rely way too heavily on pharmaceuticals and they're, they're yeah, problematic. Yeah, it's still definitely more of a pill for an ill mentality rather than a let's let's prolong things until you do need the pill um mentality um and it comes a lot it comes up a lot in the in the heart health space um the cholesterol space and the reason i really wanted to talk about this with you is because there's still such debate around um uh you know dietary fat saturated fat um the influence that that has on our cholesterol levels and then you know the foreign effect that that has to our risks for cardiovascular disease and and heart disease um yeah so maybe can we start by looking at just cholesterol like sure what is what is total cholesterol and then maybe breaking down um you know what that might look like on somebody's blood test result you know hdl ldl just help people understand what it is sure so cholesterol is actually like a waxy sort of substance and it can't be you, you can't just it can't just move around our body without a little transport mechanism so it's it's what it's it's a bit like um you know when you've got fat in your water and it doesn't mix in so our body doesn't like that it likes to be able to package everything up so it can carry it around in our blood so our blood is water based cholesterol and and dietary fats are clearly fat based so it packages them up in something called lipoproteins and we have LDL which are your low density lipoproteins and you have HDL which are your high density lipoproteins and they're what's traditionally called good and bad cholesterol which is just a complete misnomer Mm. but what it what it was was that people or or doctors or scientists all of the people had this concept or this theory that ldl is bad for us and causes heart disease and hdl is good for us and protective against heart disease so that's where that kind of good and bad thing came through Mm. So cholesterol, I mean, cholesterol in, its, in itself, it's really important for our body. We need cholesterol. It is useful for many things. It's part of our hormonal, helps make our, um, so our sex hormones, our female hormones, our male hormones. It's like the, you know, the, the baseline ingredient for those. It's used in our cell production. It's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, so important that we can actually make our own. So, you know, it, it is part of our natural Thing it doesn't need to be demonized. Mm, yeah, we make it every day, don't we? A couple of yes grams every day yes. out of the liver. Our beautiful liver, which you know, um, I know you love the liver. Mary loves the liver. We love the liver. It's an incredible, incredible organ, and certainly doesn't get enough kind of accolades. Um, I, w- I wouldn't say in the mainstream space it, it necessarily would. 
Um, I had a client yesterday who said to me, oh, my doctor just said I've got fatty liver, but like, it was fine. It was fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Whereas you're 35 years old, you should not have a quote unquote fatty liver. Let's, let's talk about what that means, why that's happened and what we need to do differently to reverse it. Cause we can't just fob that off as, you know, you've just got a little bit of fatty liver at the age of 35. Absolutely not. And, you know, fatty liver is is a serious indicator that there is metabolic ill health. And it's, you know, it is the canary in the coal mine. And I think that as doctors, we are doing a great disservice to our patients if we just say to them, you've got to touch a fatty liver. Mm. Rubbish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A little bit of a side note, but from my understanding, like the reference ranges for GGT, AST, ALT, have just been going up and up and up. Um, I think it was the, like the reference range, like the top of the reference range for AST or ALT used to be down at something like 14, um, certainly less than 20, whereas now it would be um, probably above 30, I would say, for either one of those two markers. So, Yeah, you'll find it's actually in men, it's it's often 40, yeah. Mm. the reference range is not, it is often the range that the majority of the population will have for which there's no overt disease, but that's not your optimal range. Mm. And, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, the optimal range for liver function, it, it, it really, I mean, you know, I, I really would love it if, if pathology companies had like your optimal range and then maybe a reference range. Um, because, yeah, I mean, at, at, you know, if you've got an AST or an ALT of 50, you Ooh. probably don't have serious overt disease. Like you're not going to need a liver transplant at that range. But it's not, it's not what it should be either. Mm. It should be, should be lower, definitely under 30 for, for men and under 20 for women. You're talking my language, <laughs> but it's, you know, that, and that takes time to discuss with a patient as well. You know, if you've got um, 10 minutes in a consult, really all you can talk about is the things that have been asterisked and highlighted as being overtly outside of the reference range. You don't have the time to look at optimals and, um, you know, talk through those things. I often have clients who come and do a blood test review after they've seen their doctor and they're like, oh, my doctor told me I was fine and you've just spent 45 minutes talking me through my blood test results. And I have to say, you know, I'm not saying you're not fine, just trying to articulate and highlight all of the room for improvement and the ways that we can use, you know, in my case, nutrition and lifestyle um, to really help you optimise these areas so you don't have to be looking at asterisks in five years' time or 10 years' time against these test results. So it's just a different lens, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think for most blood test results, you know, there's there's like a cutoff and people go, well, you know, and this is particularly for blood sugar, there's a cutoff. You know, you either you either have type 2 diabetes or you don't. But we know the body doesn't work like that. Mm. It, it is always a continuum. There's a spectrum. And when you're, if you're edging towards that cutoff, you're not fine. You're just not there yet Mm. and you need to change something in your life to prevent you going down that path because that's exactly where you're headed. But, again, a lot of people will go, oh, you know, your blood glucose is six. Oh, that's all right. And it's actually, no, that's not normal. It should be lower. And if you don't change something now, then you will have to do it later. Mm. And, yeah, so it is. It's just really recognising that optimal and reference range are are different very different things um and the same can be said for cholesterol right so um cholesterol like Mm -hmm. a blood test report you'll get your total cholesterol and then you will get that view of you know the quote-unquote good quote-unquote bad cholesterol um i think the reference range for total cholesterol is currently 4.5 millimoles per liter um maybe some labs five millimoles per liter as being the upper end of the range um, what would be your ideal and or do you do you look at total cholesterol um, as a first port of call with your patients? Yeah, so um, I do as part of an overall risk assessment. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, people are wanting to optimise their metabolic health. Well, I'm wanting people to optimise their metabolic mm. health, to look after all their organs. So the idea of metabolic health, it's actually end 
organ damage that we get worried about. So you get worried about your brain, your heart, your liver, all of these things that we, we, we can't replace. We only have one of them, kidneys, eyes, even feet are part of end organ damage. Mm. So we're wanting to protect those organs because they need to serve us well for our entire life, not just our first 30 or 40 years. We, medicine is very good at keeping people alive now. We have a very good age span, but not a very good health span. So I'm thinking, well, we need to be mindful that these organs need to last us for our whole lives, so we need to look after them. So as part of that, we look at, right, well, what are the things that damage our organs? And, you know, we know that things like smoking clearly damages our organs. You know, there's huge campaigns around that. Blood sugar would be the next thing that damages our organs and Mm -hmm. certainly, you know, high blood glucose you know, very high is, is very toxic, but but moderate is also quite toxic mm. to our cells. Mm. And so then people, but but we've become myopic about focusing purely on cholesterol as, as a problem. And part of the reason that we can, as medical people, focus on that is because the solution in our mind is easy. Cholesterol is high, we put you on a medication, problem solved, never mm. have to think about it again, except that it's not that simple. If it was that, you know, it doesn't work like that really. So the way I look at it is we now know that for a lot of disease process, there is an inflammatory burden that goes on. So our little blood vessels become inflamed, you know, the the little, the smallest ones, you know, they they become very inflamed and cause problems. Um, And then the ones around our heart, that's, it's the inflammation that is part of the problem. So then we look at all the things that cause inflammation. And as far as cholesterol goes, it's not the actual cholesterol per se. It's, I mean, the cholesterol itself, as I said, it's just a waxy product. It's covered in these lipoproteins, but it's the oxidation. And we hear a lot about this. We hear oxidated stress and there's antioxidants everywhere. Mm. It's the oxidation of the cholesterol. It's the oxidation of the glucose. It's the oxidation that causes the inflammatory response in our body. Mm. So then we go, all right, well, if we've got a number of cholesterol, an amount of cholesterol and we look at it and we can break it down into the HDL, we know that that's protective. So the higher, the better. And the LDL, the LDL doesn't get a complete hall pass because within that LDL, some of it is oxidized and that is the problem. So then we go, all right, well, well, what causes the oxidation of the LDL? comes back to our lifestyle factors. Mm. So certainly smoking, it's the number one thing that will oxidise your, your LDL apart from damaging your vessels directly. Okay. Blood glucose is the same. And then we look at the other things that are for which, weirdly, medicine has deviated from. So stress management, and I'm sure mm. you spend a lot of time talking to your <laughs> clients about stress. But back in the olden days, and I'm old enough to know the olden days, back in the olden days, we used to talk about type A personality as being a risk factor for heart disease. And what it, what it really was, it's not type A personality, it's stress load. Mm. And so you're stress Almost load everyone in this day and age. I, I, most of my clients are days, working mothers. And I say, if you're a working mother, the stress load is just there. I don't care if you want to try and rationalise it or normalise it, justify it, there will be a level of stress in your life. So risk factor. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Our society has a huge stress problem and the, you know, it is, it is, it is, I know there's lots of people talking about it, but again, talking and doing a different, but yeah, it is massive. And I think that we need to really address that as part of our overall addressing chronic disease. Mm. Um, sorry, you go. Oh no, you go. Um, I love that. I love that overview, overview that you just gave us because um, I think it helps people understand the context in which it, you know, cholesterol sits. You know, so we've got this overall waxy substance, cholesterol. We've got different types of it, and you know, this LDL, which is quote unquote the bad cholesterol. Like you said, it doesn't all get a whole pass, but at the same time, it isn't all bad. And um, I still see there being controversy, I think, in the health space around the relevance of LDL. Um, I refer to particle size, which I think is what you mean when you Mm. say sort of like some LDLs are oxidised and some aren't. 
um, yeah, those smaller, more dense LDLs being more risky. Yeah. So basically, I mean, we can look at the way cholesterol is produced and, um, you know, when cholesterol comes out of the liver, it comes out as these big fluffy particles, which are, uh, you know, called large buoyant or big fluffies. And then over, over this particle size's life, it can go from being big and fluffy or it can become oxidised into small, dense so small dense particles, um, you know, they're, they're unhelpful to our body. It doesn't like them. It damages blood vessel walls and it is part of the problem. But you don't know on a standard lipid profile, so a standard cholesterol blood test, you don't actually know what your LDL looks like because that's not tested in, in general in just a standard blood test. So you're, you don't know whether you've got big fluffies or small dents. We've got things that can help us make a, a bit of a guess, but we, unless you actually do something called an LDL subtraction test, you don't actually know. Mm-hmm. So um, do you of, would you often use something like a total cholesterol to HDL or triglyceride reading, reading with your clients or um, how often would you do a subtraction test? Yeah. So again, it's, it's part of a whole risk factor strategy. Mm. So, and I guess as, as a, as a doctor, I need to be mindful of um, our current guidelines because we, you know, there are, there are guidelines and I probably don't work completely within the guidelines. So I have to be able to justify, if you like, why I'm working outside them. Mm. So that again, it's it's a very it's a it's a detailed conversation. It's not just a, oh your cholesterol's high, here's the statin, see you later. Mm. It's a really detailed, and we do what is called you know just shared decision making. I really think that a, you know it's it's the patient's body. They need to be having some input into mm. what the their options are, mm. but with you know some education around it. So. Again, I will look at their whole, all, all their strat, all their risks, and and I will, I'll often do, you know, just a standard cholesterol test. And the first clue for me is always their HDL and their triglyceride ratio. So your HDL, which is helpful and protective, in a in a in a perfect world, should be higher than your triglyceride ratio, the uh, triglycerides. So if your HDL is higher than your triglyceride then I'm kind of reassured, although not always, but kind of. Yeah. So if their cholesterol is, you know, again, I say cholesterols that are pretty high, Mm. 10, 11, 12, I I will always send them for a subfraction because I need to have it documented that those people have, you know, big fluffies, Mm. not small dents. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel... I've, you know, again, and, and part of that is medico-legal protection for my myself, but also yeah. for the patient. I want to make sure if I'm saying to you, yeah, your cholesterol of 10 is okay, that it is actually it okay, is okay, that I'm not yeah. just blowing them off saying it's not okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you often see a, a, a cholesterol? I've never seen a cholesterol of 10, so my jaw was like, oof, a 10. <laughs> um, <laughs> would you... Have you have you do you often see a cholesterol of ten that comes along with like a low triglyceride figure? And you know, from my perspective, a low triglyceride would be anything less than one. Um, mm. And and a healthy HDL, like, does that happen for you a lot in your practice, or do you find if there's a if most there's of a... the time? Okay, all right. Yeah. So the interesting thing that can happen on a low carbohydrate diet, particularly with people that are very lean, is something called they become. So our body again makes cholesterol it makes the fuel and if they're very lean and they've got very low carbs so they might be on a ketogenic diet for example then their body will you you know divert the pathway to be making more cholesterol so they've got higher blood cholesterol which remember can't be moved around our body so the body wraps it up in the the lipoprotein ldl and it will make those and then shuffle that around and and that can be okay if if it's not oxidized. So if it's oxidized, then I, I'm and, and become small dense and I'm very unhappy about that. <laughs> but the, I guess the, the thing that I would say is also what is their underlying heart, um, heart disease already like? 
So for a lot of people, I will order a calcium scan. Mm-hmm. So it's a coronary artery calcium score. And again, you you know, sometimes I have people who want to have these all the time, but like every test, it, it does come with, it comes with some radiation. It's done on a CAT scan. So, you know, we can't just do them every six months because they've got, oh, I just want to know, no, 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 because then it's going to cause more harm. Yeah. So again, we have to be mindful and also coronary, you know, cholesterol. I think we've all got this image in our head that it clogs yeah. your body like a drain. Well, we had those anti-smoking ads. Um, it must have been the 90s, you know, where they literally were just like squeezing, um, you know, fat out of the, the arteries. Goop. Mm. Yes. But obviously that's in a smoker who's, you know, got high amounts yeah. of oxidative stress in the body. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, so I guess the way I manage it is I will do a, um, you know, get detailed history, including family history can be really important. Mm. Um, you know, baseline, what's your baseline state? We'll get a, a calcium score to, and, and if the calcium score is zero, so they've got no plaque or no calcified plaque in their body at all, we've got plenty of time then to make decisions about what we do with their future. Their calcium score comes back super high. Well, then again, it's like, mm, well, that's problematic. You've got, you know, significant underlying cardiac disease. We need to be mindful of that. Mm. And if their calcium score comes back in the middle, then that's always the tricky ones. Anything that's in the middle is tricky. When it's clear, it's easy. But yeah. when it's in the middle, it is a bit trickier. Yeah, yeah. Now, does coronary artery calcium score also help to um, give an idea of somebody's risk of um, stroke? cerebral vascular disease or is it more just heart attack and you know specific heart disease yeah it is i mean the score is specifically on the heart is what they look at and you can get people um really you know uh, the the radiology company can actually score each of the cardiac arteries but again our arteries aren't in isolation so what is going on in the heart is also going on in the neck vessels or you know your leg vessels yeah. so it's it's a good guide the other guide that people will sometimes use um, uh, is your CMT so they'll be looking at the um, thickness of the lining of the artery by ultrasound in your neck so mm-hmm. we can also look at that as well as another just another tool but you know I'm pretty happy with the coronary calcium score as a um as a baseline and yeah. that will give us some idea as to which again if they're in the zero i go great excellent plenty of time if they're in the very high then i go mm, okay well you've already got significant disease that's a whole different kettle and if they're in the middle then that's when we have a quite a long chat about what to do yeah okay and um i'm, I'm recapping a little bit but to progress to the coronary artery calcium score um you know, would it be a patient or somebody listening who's perhaps got um, a high high total cholesterol, so it's above, you know, the reference range, um, and the triglycerides are more than their HDL yep. cholesterol? That would be the sort of candidate that you might encourage to go on and get a coronary artery calcium score. Okay. Absolutely. And look, you know, if you actually look, if I did an analysis of the majority of, you know, standard patients' blood tests, they might have a HDL of one that that'd be pretty standard, even you know lower 0.8. That's you know usually considered pretty low, yeah. and their triglycerides might be 1.2. So if you're, which is not considered super high, that wouldn't yeah. be considered high. A lot of yeah. people wouldn't even be flagging that, but that to me is a big that's a big red flag. And then it can be you know you, you know when we see people with triglycerides who have got you know significant metabolic disease with their triglycerides in you know above two three four, and then there's actually a completely different condition, um, which is often a genetic hypertriglyceridemia condition. And I mean, well done they to can have crazy out. high triglycerides. Okay, I know. What sort of, I know. What sort of, what sort of <laughs> triglycerides would we be talking about in that case? Oh, up to like twenty. Oh wow! Twenty, okay, so it's yeah, yeah, significant, point. and it's just—it's actually a um, genetic condition and and completely separate to sort of standard. Just you know, I'm I'm really talking here about just your standard run of the mill cholesterol issues. Yes, okay. Um, so just for people listening, like um, I, I use triglycerides a lot as well when reviewing somebody's lipid profile and helping them to understand sort of 
the role that their diet plays and what tweaks that they can make. And I would, I would usually see most people with a triglyceride of less than one, um, certainly less than 1.2, which is a great thing. Like I'm always, you know, happy to share that news with somebody when their triglycerides are less than one, um, 1.2. Um, yeah. I want to go back to something that you said before around um, the influence that high um, blood glucose can have on the oxidation of cholesterol. Because um, mm. I'm looking at a paper here which was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Um, mm-hmm. The name of that is Saturated Fats and Health Reassessment and Proposal for Food-Based Recommendations, um, the Journal of American College of Cardiology, State-of-the-Art Review. So, this is a review um, on saturated fats and heart health. And one of the outcomes from that was that different short chain fatty acids have different biological effects, which are further modified by food matrix and carbohydrate content of diet. So when it comes to like high blood glucose and the, like the oxidation, oxidative stress, obviously high blood glucose is influenced by dietary carbohydrate is it the high blood glucose itself or is it the the byproduct of that the insulin that um, causes the the oxidation uh so they they both play a role so glucose itself glucose is a pesky little molecule a little bit is good you know a little bit is fine Mm. correct correct and our cells do like a bit and um, but our liver can make cholesterol uh, can make glucose as well. It's so bloody clever the liver. So the liver can make a little bit of glucose, which is fine. We know that glucose that is in our blood vessels, if it's too high, it is toxic to our blood vessels, which is why people with diabetes get eye disease because their blood vessels in their eye are damaged and feet disease so their little blood vessels mm. in their feet become yeah. damaged yeah so it is toxic directly to to uh, v- vessels blood to vessels, vessels. Mm. yeah so our pancreas god i love the pancreas if i love the liver i also love the pancreas <laughs> because the pancreas recognizes this and goes you know what body we don't want all this glucose in our blood this is terrible we need to move it so it spends its time shoveling it out of the blood vessel into the muscles that surround it and when the muscles are full into the liver and it stores it as glycogen and then when the liver and the muscles are full it shovels it into our our um, fat stores so hooray for the pancreas for doing that but the pancreas will produce as much insulin as it can in order to make that happen. And for some people, that's significant, significantly high levels of insulin, which in itself is, is you go, oh, good, well, yay for the pancreas because it's protected us against type 2 diabetes and, mm-hmm. and all that toxic stuff that the glucose does. But insulin itself is also a problem. Insulin has things called growth. Um, it, it acts like a growth hormone. Mm-hmm. So it's got, um, and as part of that, it, it's good at growing stuff. So it grows the muscles that surround, that are in our blood vessel and makes them a bit thicker and a bit stiffer. Mm-hmm. So we have it doing that. It, it, it's very good insulin at growing cancer. It's part of the reason why the Cancer Council links obesity to cancers, but it's actually the insulin as well. And we see this and we see it in um, skin tags in particular, people who have a lot of skin tags around their neck or under their arms, you know, under your boobs if you're a woman, groin, those sorts of things. That's often a really interesting sign of hyperinsulinemia. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I love, I love getting insulin low and glucose low. They both need to be low. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and both going to be affected by food choices. Um, Hence, you know, one of the benefits of reducing dietary carbohydrate and, and hence why we see outcomes of, you know, papers like the one I just referenced with, where it highlights that, um, you know, the influence of our overall our diet and carbohydrate content will um, influence our, the biological effect of fatty acids in the body. So yeah. Um, yeah. change of tune a little bit, looking at, 
um, perhaps standard medical treatment of um, high cholesterol. Um, I'd love to ask you, you know, when, when standard medical practitioners would dive in with um, uh, statin medication, um, but, or sorry, medical treatment, you can talk to us about statin medication. Um, are there guidelines, like are there guidelines, you know, within the Australian um, general, practice, um, general practitioners um, body? I don't know what, I forget what the actual acronym is. Um, yeah. The guidelines around like when um, statin medication should be used. Yeah, absolutely. There are. And, you know, the, and the level, there's not an, there, there's um, a, a calculator. So I guess you you can do your cardiac or your um, cardiac risk calculator and yeah. you, you put in things like what is their blood pressure? Because again, hypertension, we haven't really spoken about this yeah. at all in this conversation. Hypertension is quite a big risk factor for, again, this organ damage, brain, heart, kidneys, eyes. And, you know, there are plenty of people out there with uncontrolled hypertension and have no idea. Mm. So, yeah, we put you can put a whole collection of things in that will spit out a risk factor and then, you know, depending on that. Um, so there's goals that we do aim for and certainly, you know, for blood pressure we want it to be under 135 on 80. We've got, um, you know, obviously we want people to be not smoking. We've got... Uh, hemoglobin a1c targets so that's your measure of how well controlled your blood glucose is and then added in there will be a, a cholesterol target mm-hmm. and it depends a little bit on your other risk factors so if you've got nothing then um you know most doctors would probably be okay with a cholesterol of say 6.5 if there's nothing else going on mm-hmm. but once it gets over that you know I, I think that most doctors are probably pretty um uncomfortable with a, a mm. cholesterol of more than that. Yeah. Okay. And um, is that little calculator, does that include triglyceride figure? I imagine it includes no. HDL figure. Yeah, it can include um, HDL. And again, it's, it's the, um, e, the importance of having a, a high HDL is really it's often undervalued, but I think the way I tend to look at it is that, you know, overall what we're looking at is people with something called metabolic syndrome. That That is probably the highest the highest cardiac risk factor that we've got because it's a collection of symptoms that all join together mm. equal metabolic syndrome. And the driver of metabolic syndrome is actually just high insulin. So people with metabolic syndrome have high insulin. They have what's called dyslipidemia. So the thing that we were talking about, they'll have low HDL, they have high triglycerides. They often have abnormal um, liver and they'll often have hypertension. And, you know, again, when I was going through as a junior doctor, you know, back in the, in the early 90s, fatty liver was only due to alcohol use. And so when we started seeing people with fatty liver who, who said they didn't drink, Couldn't believe it. nobody believed them. Mm. They just said, no, that, that's you're just drinking, you're not telling us. Yeah. And it wasn't until it became clear that, you know, it's actually due to this metabolic syndrome driven largely by insulin, by glucose and fructose, that, Mm. yeah, it became much more obvious as to what's going on. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that concerns me about statin medication, and I appreciate there are certainly times where it it would be a requirement, is that when you look at Mm. metabolic syndrome and and everything else that's happening and you look at it as an underlying driver as being insulin, well, using a, a, a medication to lower cholesterol levels is just like filling one of the holes in the bucket. You know, like if yeah. there's a bucket with five holes and one of them is insulin and one of them is blood pressure and one of them is overweight and obesity and one of them is high cholesterol, well, we can fill that cholesterol hole, but the rest is just going to still keep getting flooded. Um, I, I wish there was like a prescription of statin thing. and you have to change your diet and lifestyle. Sorry, yeah. I, I cut out, cut, cut over you. That's okay. Um, I think that it is, look, it is, um, it's really interesting. And I, and I think that, you know, if we, we go where the root cause is, is hyperinsulinemia, um, there's actually an underlying, there's a root cause below that too, because why have we got high insulin? So we've got, you know, genetics and epigenetics these days where people are much more prone to developing hyperinsulinemia 
So you can have two people who both have the same diet and it might be a carbohydrate-based diet and one of them will develop high insulin and one won't. And so we've got to be mindful that there is clearly a genetic predisposition there. And we now know that 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 is true, that within families there's genetic um, things and and particularly epigenetics, which I love, which is the turning off and turning on of genes. And so I think what it, what I go back to is back to this whole thing where we make these very big sweeping generalizations on what every single person should do. So every single person should have low salt. Every single person should have a cholesterol below, you know, X number. Every single person should have no more than X amount of carbohydrates or every single person should have at least this amount of carbohydrates. It doesn't actually work for our, our population. It's really, really doesn't. Yeah, we're 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 all different. <laughs> There's no denying that. Um, yes, and we all respond differently to foods and and lifestyle. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm such a big believer that we have to be getting personalised, um, of course, medical advice, but to some degree, lifestyle mm. advice as well. Because you know, reading what ex influencer on Instagram did to lose their weight is is not like that's not personalized lifestyle advice um or you know hearing about you know um like the other side of the story you know a type one diabetic who managed to reduce their insulin to almost nothing through a low carbohydrate diet like you know that's fantastic and those you know those scenarios happen but it doesn't mean that all type one diabetics can go and cut carbohydrates from their diet tomorrow and you know, expect it to be a safe process. Yeah. So um, as much as individual medicine is important, so is individual lifestyle and nutrition advice, I believe. Yes, I completely agree with you. I really do. I think I think there's some broad brush strokes and I think that our, you know, our society relies sadly way too much on processed food and the processed food industry have done a brilliant job of convincing us that we are all time poor and we don't have time to cook. Um, and in fact, we don't even have time to eat. So, you know, they'll provide us with garbage like up and go instead that we can drink in the car and yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And we need to really reinvent that paradigm because that's just so, um, it, it is causing our population to be become sick. And it's, you know, and I guess the thing that I, I've seen over the years is I see people they work hard. You know, people, most people work hard during their working career. Um, they're planning, you know, they're saving, they're working hard for their retirement, they get to their retirement and then and they're unwell. You know, they have a heart attack or mm. they need a hip replacement or there's a whole heap of stuff going on. And I think, you know, you sh- this is your twilight. This is your time. This is yeah. your time. You've, you've raised your children. You should be able to go off and enjoy yourselves, but your, you know, your, your health has suffered because of, of, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to a, um, it must've been an American physician talking, um, you know, similar sort of um, uh, functional health, lifestyle health, um, that sort of space highlighting that, you know, you could spend $50,000 on getting bariatric surgery to, to reduce weight. So you take minimal time off work um, or you could take time off work and use $50,000 to, overhaul your life and you know buy yourself time to prepare food and eat food and exercise and move and stress less and you could lose the weight and like lose it forever and I just love that perspective that um like you said you know our working years our peak working years it's we don't think necessarily about the financial um drain that that poor health can cause and therefore we don't think about the influence of working 10 to 12 hours a day um, on our on our health and what that means to us you know in our in our later years of life we've just we've just lost I think that as a as a general community we've lost that yeah um, emphasis and importance on taking care of our bodies we think that someone will help us fix it when it's broken we don't think about trying not to break it, you know, and lucky we do have doctors that can help us fix it when, when it's broken. So we do live longer, but I think we all need to learn how to not break our bodies as well. Ah, 
Absolutely, yes. It is, I mean, you know, it's it's a cliche, but it's true. Prevention is better than cure. It is absolutely. If you can, um, you know, look after your body and, you know, really, I mean, I know self-care is a buzzword. It's everyone's using and talking about self-care, but self-care is not, it's not bubble baths. It's not, you know, it is actually caring and looking after your body, which is sometimes, you know, sometimes boring. It is sometimes boring. It's sometimes hard. But it's actually critical if you want to be able to, you know, not just live long, but live well. Precisely. So, um, you know, you, you do a lot working in the, you know, body compositional change and fat loss space. And I actually want to take the shame away from the term fat loss because um, there is nothing wrong with perhaps identifying that you need to lose some body fat, as, you know, to the point where that body fat's becoming a risk factor, you know? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say that because I think there's a lot of shame at the moment around using the terms fat loss. Um, so we need to recognize that some people do need to lose body fat. Um, but often that body fat that needs to be lost is really just, um, it's just like another um, flashing light on the, the, the dashboard of the car, right? Like it's just a little sign that something's gone awry and, you know, in the work that you do, because um, you work with groups um, in um, programs a lot, don't you? So you work one-on-one but with groups yep. as well. So yeah. I imagine a lot of what you're doing is really just um, helping, you know, those patients to be well again, obviously with fat loss being one of the byproducts and measurements, but just to be well again. Yeah, and I think basically it's, you know, there is a, a, a path that people that we need to navigate and on one, at one extreme, you've got, you know, influencers and fitfluencers or whatever they're called, who it's all about, um, you know, and hijacking the word health to mean skinny. Hmm. Because I can tell you now there are plenty of thin people who are not healthy. Um, so we don't need to be a size six or a size eight to be healthy. And then at the other end, there we do know that people who are carrying a lot of uh, body fat some of them are metabolically well, but there are also things that still just can cause our, um, I guess, cause stress on our body with, you know, weight, you know, weight on our knees and all of those sorts of things. And it's, I think that the key is to really develop a lot of compassion, me as a practitioner for my patients, but the people to develop compassion for themselves. Because for a lot of people, becoming overweight, it's not their fault. You know, they were conditioned. We've been conditioned to use food all the time as a reward, as a treat, as a something to deal when we're stressed. You know, we haven't been taught how to manage our emotions, how to do emotional regulation. For other people, they use food to manage their trauma. And, you know, we know that trauma in people is extensive and has been underreported for years and years. So instead of helping people with their trauma, we just shame them for their food choices, and that's unhelpful. So, you know, really, I guess, taking away that shame and saying to people, you know what, it's not your fault. It isn't. It truly isn't. But if you want to feel better, because that's what it's all about. All humans, mm. all the time, all we want to do is feel better. And sometimes we have used food to do that. For some people, it's alcohol to feel better. But there is a different way. And learning how to feel better in working with your body, with your metabolic and your, you know, female hormones, if you're female, working with those in a way that is beautiful and sustainable and lovely is really the key and it's not about being perfect and it's not about being on a diet and it's not about losing weight so that you feel more worthy because mm. you are bloody worthy the way you are, but it's just about eating well to feel good. I love it. I love it. You put it all together so succinctly um, <laughs> and I can imagine you make your patients feel incredibly safe and um, taken care of in the process. I think it is the key, absolutely, because I think for, and again, I'm, you know, my profession, I'm sometimes ashamed of them, but they, they have done it. And, and you know what, probably as a junior doctor, I did too. I said to people, oh, you need to lose weight. What are you doing? How much are you eating? And you make people feel bad. And that is unhelpful. If you make people feel bad, they, they, they just shrink into themselves and, and stop 
seeking help and that's mm. really unhelpful mm. so um you practice I believe you practice with your um, your patients one on one on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, for those of for those listening yep. that aren't there and want to learn more from you, um, how can they do that? So um, yes, I have a small and it's it's slightly dwindling practice on the Mornington Peninsula, not because of demand, but because I have realised that I really love the idea of serving many and when and you know you know what it's like Ali when you're working one-to-one you you you, you've only got so much capacity um so yes uh I work with my beautiful colleague who you know well Dr Mary Barson and we have uh our 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 business if you like is called real life medicine which I again you know when you just come across a name and I suddenly think every day I think to myself god that's a good name (laughs) which totally resonates with with everything that we that we do because we are, you know, it's it's really just helping people navigate real life with some actual real life solutions, not, not, um, you know, I think, again, you know, in our current life we can be fall victim to filters and the highlight reels and all of that sort of stuff, whereas, you know, Mary and I pride ourselves on being real and raw. Um, so, yes, yeah, so certainly follow us on all our pages on Instagram and, and Facebook or under Real Life Medicine. And we have a website which is called RL Medicine, short for real life. We wanted either RLM, but that was taken, and real life medicine was taken by some person who's just hoarding Holding the domain it. name and waiting <laughs> for us. Yeah, yeah, so rlmedicine.com. Awesome. Well, I'll pop those um, those links in the show notes for everybody to check out. Oh, thank you. Um, anything else that you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? No, I guess the thing I would, the main thing I would like to just say is that, you know, for people that are feeling that that, that it's too late for them, it's never too late. It is never too late. You know, I've got a lady at the moment who's in her 80s doing our program and she is full of life. She, you know, and she joined because she was having pain, you know, and, again, changing to a real food diet has just improved her pain no end. So it is never too late to start. It doesn't have to be perfect. And if you find that you've lost your way, it's never too late to start again. But I think sometimes people think they should be able to do it all by themselves. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's, it's, you need some support. Yeah, definitely. You, you learn your lifestyle habits over a lifetime and you can't expect yourself to undo those habits on your own over the space of a month. It, it takes time, it takes direction and, and helping you to prioritise things. So I love that. Absolutely. Good. Thank you, Lucy. So great to talk to you. I really appreciate you sharing so much, um, you know, helping us to go behind the scenes a little bit with your practice, your professional practice. So, yeah, I'm very much appreciated. Thank you for being here. Uh, well, thank you for having me on, Ellie. It's been a delight. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode. Now, before you move on to the next thing, get a pen and write down one thing that inspired you from this week's show. That one thing you know you need to go away and start doing differently. Please also remember that this show is not intended to diagnose or treat any health conditions. So if you need tailored support and you'd like to do that with me, please head on over to my website, nutritionally.com forward slash work with me, where you can learn what it means to work with me. 